Friends, um, we are coming to the last leg of a journey that we've made as a congregation this January uh, through this <clears throat> little but very profound book called Mere Christianity, through the opening parts of it anyways. And we've come to the fourth and final and best leg. If you are here for the uh, first time or our guest this morning, I'm going to try to summarize in about two minutes or less, or if you've caught just uh, a couple of these messages. This is a mighty train of logic and thought that is contained in this book. Not starting with the Bible, but starting through observing the universe and observing what we are like uh, in our own hearts and consciences. Here we go. In the universe, there is a moral law, a sense of right and wrong that is written on everything and deep within our hearts. The fact is that all of us, each of us, we break this law, we transgress it. And there is not only a something behind the universe and behind this law, there is a someone, someone we call God. And we believe that this someone is not just all-powerful, but that he is good as well. And the reality that God is strong and that he is good causes big problems for our little human brains because we wonder, where did all this suffering come from? Where did all this trouble come from? Why is so much wrong? And the best response to this mysterious question is that God values freedom beyond all things. That God desires us to be free to respond to him, to love him in return. And the gift of that freedom gave us the very capacity that we have used to inflict so much sin and trouble on the world and which Satan, a fallen angel, has used to inflict so much trouble on the universe. But God uses his freedom and uses our freedom to tell us about himself. And the clearest way he has ever spoken or revealed anything about himself has come to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth who claimed, very strangely for a human being, who claimed to be God himself, who claimed to be God in the flesh. Now, this is a big problem because most people in the world, most Americans, quite frankly, it's very easy and comfortable to keep Jesus at a safe distance by saying he's just a really great person, an exemplary man, a wise teacher, a religious sage, a sharer of enormous spiritual wisdom. But if we acknowledge that Jesus is God, then we have to open ourselves and give him permission to get into all of our business, to get into all of our heart and all of our soul, if he really is God. Now, like I said, people everywhere are tempted to keep Jesus at the safe distance. I think Jesus knew that we would want to do this, so he didn't leave the option open to us. Uh, Going to share some words from Matthew chapter 17 a moment. Uh, would you please read the words in yellow? On one occasion, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man, me, is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter the Brave answered, You are the Messiah, 
the Son of the living God, otherwise known as God himself. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus didn't leave the option open that we could simply acknowledge him as a really good guy, a great moral teacher. C.S. Lewis describes what Jesus just did in this passage as a trilemma. You know what a dilemma is? It's when you're stuck between two choices. What do I do? What do I do? A trilemma means you have three choices. And when Jesus of Nazareth, a human being, flesh and blood, just like you or me, said that he was God, there are really only at the end of the day three ways to react to him. If there's a person who says he's God, either he is a lunatic, totally crazy, I'm God. Or he is a liar of the worst kind, trying to get a cult following around himself. Or if he's telling the truth, he is the Lord himself. He is a, either a madman, a bad man, or the God man. Now, in this room today, this is how far we've made it in mere Christianity so far. In this room today, I'm taking it for granted that a lot of us in this room are willing to say Jesus is Lord. And those of us who might not quite be there are at least pretty open to the possibility. Or you'd be having a coffee somewhere right now. So I'm going to proceed uh, taking that much on assumption. Now, the purpose of Jesus as the God-man coming to earth, his purpose was indeed to teach. But his ultimate teaching or sharing was not about how to be a good person, how to be a moral person, how to be a kind person, how to be a God-fearing person. For sure, he said a lot that would help us be all of those things, but that was not the main point. The main point of Jesus' mission and his teaching was about his death and coming to life again. And the heart of Christianity, the heart of mere Christianity, lies right here. In Christian theology, we have this word called the atonement. And that is as good a word as any that strikes at the heart of what our faith is all about. Atonement means to make right something that was wrong, to make right something that was harmful or injurious, to heal. C.S. Lewis says in chapter 5, we are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity. That is mere Christianity. Do you hear this? The main thing, the heart of the heart, is that Jesus came to share his death with us and share his life with us. Now, a thinking person asks at this point, okay, even if I believe this, okay, but how does it work? Like, how, how is that, that Jesus' death and life makes make me die and come alive? 
C.S. Lewis beautifully points out, there are lots of things in life that for them to work on you, you don't have to understand how they work. And ultimately, in the Christian faith, this is going to be true. It's a mystery. Think about um, the way you and I take in food, for example. Do you have to be a registered dietitian or nutritionist in order to get nourishment from the meals that you eat? No, it could help select the right foods to optimally nourish yourself, right? But you don't have to know about calories or fats or proteins in order to get the nutrition that you need to be a vibrant human being. You following me on this? Okay. So in this room, there are probably lots of theories in our midst about the best way to eat. I am guessing there are folks on the paleo diet here. There are folks on the low-carb diet here. On the high-carb diet here. There are folks on the Mediterranean diet, vegetarian diet, pescatarian diet, vegan diet, donutitarian diet. <laughs> yes, every Thursday, I shift to the donutitarian diet. <clears throat> but yet here we all are, different theories of nutrition, and yet we all had the strength and power to stand up, get up, and come to this place of worship today. What matters is that you eat enough to live and thrive, and it is the same thing with our spiritual life. We need to partake enough in the sufferings and the life of the living Christ to be spiritually alive. What Jesus did in coming to planet Earth, it works. We share it. You don't have to have a perfect theological understanding in order to benefit from it. Praise God. Now, this has not stopped Christians throughout the years of wondering deeply about how it works and having all kinds of theories. And in Mere Christianity, Book 2, Chapter 4, C.S. Lewis lays out a few of them. I need to mention them really quickly. You can, all, you can hear echoes of all of these in the scriptures, each and every one of them. How does it work that sharing in the death and life of Jesus works? One theory is the ransom analogy of the atonement. When we fell into sin, it was as if we went to the wrong side and we were ransomed to the power of the devil. He had control over us. And with his precious sinless blood, Jesus paid the price, the ransom price, and we were brought to the other side to be set free. If that helps you, please meditate and think about that. There's echoes of that in scripture for sure. The more common way in the Roman Catholic Church, in the West, and in Protestant churches is to think of the atonement, sharing Christ's death and life, in a legal sort of way. That when we sinned, we offended God's honor and we owe him an enormous and unpayable debt. And Jesus paid the debt with his body and with his blood so that we could be made right with God. A slightly different twist on this is that when we sinned, we offended God's eternal justice, his law, and we are legally culpable and punishable. And Jesus, in suffering on the cross, paid the punishment, paid the price for our wrong and our sin. You can hear echoes of this in the scripture. You hear this in this church quite a bit. It's our go-to way of explaining the atonement. It is not the only way. If it helps you, please meditate and think on these things. Another way, more common in the Orthodox churches of the East, is to think of the atonement in terms of a divine uh, infection. So when God created human beings, his intention was for us to live forever. 
for mortality and immortality to be joined. And when we sinned, we started dying, and our nature was split, and communication between human beings and the divine was split. And when Jesus became the God-man, he reunited the divine life and the human life, and he opened up the possibility so that human beings can once again have divinity and immortality poured back into us so that we can grow back toward God. If this helps you, please meditate on these things. There are echoes of it in the scriptures. And C.S. Lewis in chapter 4 of Book 2 of Christianity does even a slightly different version of this. C.S. Lewis, he's saying, this is the way that helps me, Jack Lewis, the most. Having seen his friends die in World War I, having been a radio presence for the UK in World War II, C.S. Lewis is always thinking about this great cosmic battle between light and dark, heaven and hell. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It's that we rebelled against God as human beings, and we are on the rebel side of a war. And for us to come back to God, we rebels need to lay down our guns, lay down our arms, and repent, wave the white flag, and come over to God's side, the right side of the war. Not a bad way of looking at it. But then he says this. The problem for us human beings is, in order... Only a bad person needs to repent and come to the other side, and only a perfectly good person can repent perfectly. Bad people might even want to repent, but they can't get all the way there because they're so bad they can't even, like, repent all the way. So what God did was he himself sent his son to walk in the shoes of us rebels. And Jesus repented if I can put it that way. He surrendered his will. He laid down everything in order to submit himself to God. And what he did was he then, as a human being and as our Lord, can show us the way and hold our hand and teach us really horrible repenters how to genuinely repent. And he can bring us from the rebel side to God's side. If this helps you, meditate on these things. There are echoes of it in the scripture. And C.S. Lewis says, if none of these things help you, just stop thinking about them and just remember that what Jesus did, it works. Whether you understand how it works or not, whether you have a great mental image of how it is, it works, it works, it works. Now, what I have just described the fact that Jesus' death and life is effective is the heart of mere Christianity. One way to think of this is that the house of faith is a very big house. And when we receive the death and life of Christ, we enter that house. We're in the giant foyer. Maybe we're in the hallway at the center of that house. But C.S. Lewis points out that once you receive this mere Christianity, you need to take it a step further. In God's house, there are many rooms. There's a Christian Reformed room. There's a Lutheran room. There's an Assembly of God room. There's an Eastern Orthodox room. There's a Syrian Orthodox room. And what we all need is to receive the death and life of Christ and then take up residence in one of these rooms where we can talk with our friend, where we can share meals together to grow in our faith, where we can make a fire to warm our spirits and warm our souls. 
Now, C.S. Lewis himself, he was born in Ireland, raised as an Irish Catholic, was an atheist by the time he was an early adolescent, was an atheist for almost 20 years. And then, in his own words, he said, God unscrupulously pursued me through literature, through my imagination, through logic, and he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God at about age 32, into mere Christianity. And then for the rest of his life, he found a comfortable room in the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And he recommends, I think, perfectly for all of us to receive the life of Christ and then to find a good room to be with other people. It's one way to think of what we do here on Sunday and all of the ministries of the church, that we are just one little room in God's very big house to keep the life of Christ growing and alive and thriving in all of our respective communities. Now, on the topic of atonement, there is one scripture verse that I feel compelled to share with you. Uh, when I was a kid, my teacher described it as biblical dynamite, or TNT, because it will blow your life up. TNT, because it's Roman 10, T, 9, N, and 10, T. You follow me? No one is amused by this? I'll blow you up. If you have never memorized a verse of scripture, put this on the top of the list. Tell it to your children. Say it as a bedtime prayer. This gets to the heart of mere Christianity and what the Christian atonement is all about. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will share in Jesus' life. And the definition of saved here is forgiven, healed, made whole. You're a new person. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Amen, anybody? Yes. Like, this is pretty good news. Yes. You re let's read this all together. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's where it all starts. In the final chapter of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis takes this final step of then describing um, after we start with Christianity and after we have received this life, how God goes about growing the life of Christ in us. And he lists three things. And I confess, the first time I read this list as a young person, I thought, really? Is that all there is to it? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. The three main conduits or conductors of Jesus' life in our life. Number one, baptism. Number two, faith or belief for the life of discipleship. And number three, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. Those are God's three divinely ordained ways to bring us to new life. So when we are baptized, literally, it is a symbol to us 
It is a sign to the world that God has adopted us into his family. Some of us in this room were baptized as infants we don't remember. Anytime we witness anyone else's baptism, we have the opportunity to remember what God has done for us. Quite frankly, anytime we get near a drop of water, this is why lots of churches have little uh, water fonts at the doors or on the way into a place of worship, so that every time you come into this place, uh, you could dip a finger in, put it on your forehead, and remember, hmm, I am not my own, but God has washed me and set me free. Not just being baptized, but living into your baptism is God's first way of growing his life inside of you. The second way is the life of discipleship. And this is a huge, broad category. I mean, it includes reading the scriptures, praying, fasting, spiritual conversations with friends, small groups, coming to worship, the million and one things that we do or could do that encourage the life of Christ in us. And the third way is another sacrament, the sharing of the Lord's Supper. A theological founder of our denomination, a man named John Calvin, wished for his churches and followers that they would celebrate communion every single Sunday. We have never done this. But the idea was, if this is really on God's top three, it seems like maybe doing that more often rather than less often might be a decent idea. Huh. We look to Jesus' own words. Jesus' marching orders to his disciples right before he was taken up into heaven were these. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world. And number two, make disciples. The next word, baptizing them, number one, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, the last night of his life, when his disciples would be hanging on every syllable that he said, shared the simple gifts of bread and wine with them. And as he shared the bread, he said, as often as you eat of this, remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. As he shared the cup with them, whenever you drink this, remember me. Because it's in the remembering of Jesus' mission that his life grows and grows and grows. I can't tell you exactly how it works or why it works. I take it on Jesus' authority. It works because he said it works. And I look in your eyes and I know lots of you are living proof. It works because it works. When we pursue these three behaviors, we open ourselves to nourishing and receiving what only God and his grace has done for us. Toward the end of mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. God does not love us because we are good, but God will make us good through baptism, through a life of discipleship, through Holy Communion. God will make us good because he loves us. brings us to the threshold of the end, the finale, one final question. If God is so longing to make us good and new and perfect, why is he waiting so long to do it? 
we had spent 2,000 years. A lot of people have lived and died and suffered and cried and hurt and hurt and lost and hurt. What is taking God so long? And C.S. Lewis finishes by, again, using this war analogy. He says it's like this. God, the rightful king, is landing in enemy territory, occupied territory. And he is going to finish the war. But for now, he is happy to have us be his spies, be his secret society to undermine the devil, the prince of this world. Here is why he is delaying instead of wrapping up the war right now. He wants to give as many rebels as possible the opportunity to join up and come over to his side. To choose to love him, to serve him, to turn toward him. As we heard today, we rebels need his help even to take that step. But he wants to help us. He desires above all things that we should come to his side and be his free children, to be his church, his bride, his lover. But the day is coming when all of this, when the war, when everything we see here, when this entire material universe is going to melt away and something beyond our imagining is going to come crashing in something new, something more beautiful, something so much better is going to break in. Something C.S. Lewis says, so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others of us that we will either run to him or run away from him and we will not have any choice left. We will simply react when the Lord of heaven and earth comes on the stage of history. This is frightening to put it this way. He is saying when Jesus comes and returns, all of us are either going to have one of two equal and opposite reactions to him. When the author of history walks on the stage, either we will find in his face everything that we have longed for and desired and we will run into his arms with utter abandon and joy or we will see in his face the judge that we fear, the one who will displace us from the center of our own lives and not wanting that, we will run as far as we can into the darkness where we can maintain being the center of our own little life. That's hell in a nutshell. Ultimately, those are the only two options that are open to us. You may be sitting here today um, with doubts, with wonderings. Maybe your response to what you just heard is, I just need a little time. Like, wait, don't put the screws of pressure on me today, Pastor Guy. God's okay with you waiting and wondering. And if you investigate Jesus, I fully trust in time, it will all be made clear. What I'm saying is that there is a moment coming for this universe and for every man and woman and creature under the sun when Jesus shows up 
And that is no longer the moment to choose. That is no longer the moment to say, I receive the death and life of Jesus Christ. All that is left for us in that moment is an instinctual reaction based on everything that has come before. And we will either be running to him for eternity or we'll be running away for eternity. And I feel compelled to ask you, have you come to the crossroads in your life where you have oriented yourself toward him or away from him? That is what Jesus is going to ask of all of us. Have you come to a moment like that? I remember the first time, I was 12 years old, uh, riding my bike in a field behind my parents' house under a brilliant blue sky on a Midwestern day, and something about that day, it occurred to me deep in my heart in a way it had never done so in all of my Sunday school lessons, it occurred to me how much God loved me. I, I, I knew it. I experienced God. I remember a time when I was 16 years old, I was mowing a, a lawn. I mowed a lawn for 15 bucks. While mowing this lawn, uh, the love of God fell on my little adolescent heart. And I spent the rest of this lawn mowing singing. Like, I didn't care. I really was excited about the love of God and his affection for me. In my mid-twenties, I went through a period where I was a mess. I had to do a major change, turnaround, repentance, and again, just the love of God that he would be interested in an idiot like me. Have you come to a crossroads moment? Friends, life is complicated. Faith is tenuous. But what mere Christianity is all about, what this faith is all about, is sharing Jesus' life and death and then living as long as we have breath in surrender to him, in gratitude to him. And if you haven't decided to either receive it or surrender, uh, maybe this is your day to say yes to God a little more deeply or to reaffirm your yes to God with an exclamation point. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to conclude with two songs. One is a great song about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, a way for us to say yes. And then the final song is about following him. We invite you to stand and sing. Um, if something would help symbolize your yes, putting your hand over your heart, pointing to God in heaven, bowing, kneeling, uh, jumping, like this is just between you and God and if other people see it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, what I care about is you're saying yes to the one so much bigger, stronger, and more loving. So let's sing. And if it is within you to say yes to God today, let him hear and see your yes.